welcome to Slash Report. I'm Prue, and this week I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime, MK. Hello. Hi. Um, and this week we also have very special returning guests from the Vikings debacle. Mistress Kirby, how are you doing? I'm great. <laughs> Aren't you thrilled that you are here not to talk about Vikings? I am. Rather than talking about cockroach cake, it's just cake this it's time. It's just guys. cake. Yay. Because, guys, what a beautiful transition. High five me. You got to come on with Alvin. So instead of cockroach cake, we are talking about cake, we are talking about bread, we are talking about all kinds of carbs and foods because this is our very special cooking episode or cooking television episode. Um, and what better way to start it off since you started with cake than, guys, the Great British Bake Off. Yay! Yes! And so before we actually get into it, for anyone listening who has not seen the finale of the latest, what was it, Series 6? Yep. The latest Series 6, which is the season with, like, adorable uh, anesthetist Samal, who doesn't know how to do math, which is worrying, <laughs> and some other great people, like Nadia, with her fabulous faces. Do not listen to this if you don't want to get spoiled. Like, skip ahead maybe 20 minutes or something, because we are absolutely going to spoil the ending. Because what a great season. It was so satisfying. Like, I mean, I've seen all six series of um, Great British Makeup at this point, and, like, all of them, with possible exception of the first one, yeah. have a lot to recommend them. Yeah. But this was just, it was, it was so lovely. It was. It was really lovely. I think it's also, I mean... Do we want to give a quick rundown? So for those of you who have never, ever seen The Great British Bake Off, who are listening to this thinking, like, what is this? So, Mistress Kirby, since you are the person who kind of got me back on the wagon after falling off for GBBO for a while, do you want to sort of walk everyone listening um, through what the show is? Sure. Um, so... And, and this is from the perspective of an American. I just yes. sort of like preference filthy colonists. Exactly, you know. And so, um, but it, it's it's basically it takes the idea of you know the small village baking competition in um, old England and <laughs> turns it into the sweetest, most um, like encouraging and like helpful kind of cooking competition that you could ever have. And um, most years there are either 12 or 13 bakers and they tend to come from all over, you know, the UK and Ireland. And it tends to be like a pretty, um, like really genuinely, interestingly diverse assortment of people um, who all love to bake and who all love to bake things that as an American are sometimes some of the things that they bake are exciting from the standpoint of what the fuck is that? Oh my God. Yes. Like I'm still not actually entirely sure what the difference between a dessert and a pudding is and like how any of those things function together and they don't, and, but, but that's part of the joy for me as an American getting to watch it is that you know, I'm seeing things being created that I've never encountered before. Yeah. And they're like, all right, you have three hours, go. And I'm sure. It's, I think it's also, like, a really interesting cultural experience because, like, one thing that um, came up this season, I see if you guys remember this, was the episode where they were talking about peanuts or mm -hmm. peanut butter. Mm -hmm. And the judges were concerned because they weren't sure that peanut butter went with grape jelly as flavors. Yeah. And I was like... Uh, Britain. 
it's Jack. I know that, like, we have some differences. What with the ocean and us hurling your tea in that, you know, harbor and shit. But how's peanut butter and grape jelly? No PBJ. Is this like this is not a thing we hoarded? Like everyone, <laughs> like everyone could have this. It's just baffling. Listen, when they first said that, I thought they were joking. Like it <laughs> took me a while to be like, oh wait, they're they're serious. They don't. Did they not eat that? Apparently not. But they also like voluntarily eat things that I view as like frankly horrifying. Right. Like oh. I love Tamal. I think that he is like so cute mm-hmm. and i'm going to overlook his inability to do basic arithmetic mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's an anesthesiologist <laughs> but like remember that cake he made in the finale that was like a sticky toffee pudding fruit cake like even as i say those words my stomach is like Bleh. like those are terrible things that don't go together England is the only country where they're like, let's eat fruitcake voluntarily. Yeah, he had me right up until he said fruitcake. I was like, wow, sticky toffee pudding is a cake? Great, I will eat that. And then he was like, and I made it a fruitcake. And I'm like, God, just stop it. Stop putting fruit and shit in your bread. Like, what? What is your problem? I legitimately, like, don't understand. Um... Well, I mean, but that's what happens when you have, you know, the 19th century where no one can get sugar. And so they were like, well, what can we do? You know, dried fruit. That's, yeah, that's sort of the same thing. Sure. And I mean, I don't actually know how the fruit cake came about. So yeah. I'm totally wrong. My apologies. Um, but but it, it is, but that is definitely like one of the joys in terms of being someone who's not from Britain is just yeah. sort of watching this and having this like kind of like, cross-cultural just like food experience. Exactly. Just being like, what is happening right now? Absolutely. Um, although honestly, I don't know that I've ever seen my mom more genuinely like offended <laughs> and like upset by a TV show like this than the episode. It was either in series like three or four where they're making American, and I'm using scare quotes, um, <laughs> Uh, sweet pies. Oh God! And what? They trying, and they were trying to do these things. And my mother, who is a fantastic baker, and in particular her pies are amazing. I've never seen my mom so genuinely offended by what they were attempting to do. And like it was just because it's so different. Like it's just it's a different yeah food experience. It absolutely is. I mean, it's also like one of those, oh, th- that, this was the other evening that I think I shared with a lot of people, this latest series of like, they got, where we were all like, how do you not know what PETA looks like? Right? What is wrong with everybody in this fucking tent? How do you not know what PETA bread looks like? Or like, how, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell if they were like making it a larger deal than it actually was. I don't think but so. they seemed genuinely confused. And I, how? But to be fair, I have no idea what 90% of the things that they're saying that they're about to make should sure. look like sure. when they're first talking about it. So I just feel like pita bread is like you literally buy it in bags at the grocery store. Exactly. I'm trying to remember if I ever saw it in bags at the Tesco when I lived in the UK, and I don't think I did, right. to be quite honest. Like, for the beautiful cultural melting pot that is, that's a lie. The UK is like way less <laughs> really diverse than people like to think of themselves. Anyways, but like 
you there were like weird things that feel very commonplace in the U.S. in the food landscape that are just like completely absent there. So like I I feel like in many ways one of my favorite things to do is like be like oh look it's time for the Jewish holidays it's time for me to like cook some things with matzah mm-hmm. like it's a nice reminder that I should just like make something heavy and delicious. So I remember one year I like went searching for matzah because I wanted to make chicken uh, matzah ball soup. And like, actually, Slash reporters will remember this because I was making that matzah ball soup on the Teen Wolf episode where I was trying not to listen to these motherfuckers mm-hmm. about Teen Wolf. Um, but like, you don't know the journey that went into finding this fucking matzah. And I, it was like the last, literal last box in like a warehouse Sainsbury store, like some corner of fucking North London. Um, so no, I actually don't think I saw like bags of pita, right. like at the store. So maybe they just like, but I still, I'm just like, how? Right. Like there are lots of breads I don't see on the regs, but I like sort of know what the deal is. <laughs> I think my whole experience with like British grocery stores whenever I'm over there is always a little weird. Like just the cheese aisle is like a whole different experience than it would be here. And like. I, I don't know. Everything that they do dairy-wise is basically a surprise to me. <laughs> but I also, like, I don't know. I live next to a very strange grocery store where, like, the quail eggs are right next to all the regular eggs. So I can't really throw stones. It's true. Well, you never know when you're going to eat a quail egg. Or I a duck could, egg. Those yeah. are also there. Yeah. If, I could, if I could listen to your place to give me quail eggs, I would 100% do it. Um, so, I mean, the, to give a little bit more info on the structure of an individual episode of Bake Off, it basically, first of all, like you have to understand the context of this. So most cooking competition shows that people see are held in like these beautifully steel industrial kitchen sets and people are running around and there's like a lot of like high pitched, like music to make you tense and shit. Bake Off is literally like a beautiful white tent in the middle of a lush green field and like the little cutaways are usually to the fact that it always films during the summer. So of course it's fucking pouring all the time around the tent. And there are like lamps <laughs> frolicking around this tent, maybe like a babbling brook. And the tent is always set up in like the green meadows of some like old country pile. It's very pastoral. It's like, extremely and specifically English pastoral. Yep. And, like, if you look at this tent, it's covered in little bunting. And in case you don't know what that is, it's, like, little the little flag ribbon banners of, like, the British flag. And, like, everything is nice, pastel colors. And, like, the music is, like, relaxed. And you meet, like, 12 contestants who are all, like, quite lovely people. Yeah. Well, and I think that one of the things about... Great British Bake Off, and this is especially true when you then compare it with, um, you know, certainly all American cooking competition shows that I've seen, and my impression of most cooking shows that are held in other countries as well, where they, what they, they, they seem to do, they seem to approach everything from sort of the opposite point of view where it's not that there isn't tension because there is like it's very it's very important everyone really wants to do well it matters to every single one of the people that's in the tent um but there's no sabotage 
except yeah. for like you know on the rare occasion when someone's um was it a custard cream or it was it ice was cream. ice cream well no there were two because there were there was there was the um the bin there, was, there was been gate with the bay to alaska um but there was there was another thing from the year before where was someone actual sabotage? I don't think it was sabotage. No, 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 no. wait. Did you guys watch? There's like an episode that came out before the final that like went through everything that had happened that season. Yes. That ice cream in the baked Alaska was only out of the freezer for ten minutes. Oh yeah, no, it was it was totally not an actual controversy at all. Like yeah. and this is one of the other things that's fantastic and we have to get into why they're great too. But my favorite thing about that entire controversy was that afterwards, Sue Perkins, who is one of the two hosts and is delightful yep. and call me Sue. Um, <laughs> it, she, she went on Twitter and was like, that wasn't what, you know, like didn't actually ruin anything. Like she yeah. shouldn't be mad at how that entire thing went down. Like it's unfair to blame her for, you know, yeah. for everything. And, and because their desire was to smooth over yeah, the controversy. potential controversy or potential, like, you know, even appearance of one contestant has been anything other than lovely and helpful and yes. kind. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a competition, but it's, it's like, it's um, like a competition between friends, like everyone yes. on it becomes friends. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it also helps then to give you guys the context that there is no monetary compensation for winning Bake Off. Like, literally, the prize... So, the judges for this show are a gentleman by the name of Paul Hollywood, who is, like, quote-unquote mean for a British baking show judge, but who would be, like, the tiniest blue-eyed kitten in, like, any rest, in any, like, top chef judging panel. And then Mary Berry, who is, like, an absolute, like... She's, like... She's your grand. She's your grand, but she's also, like, a, a standard benchmark of, like, British baking. Like, she has, like, all the clashes, clashes? classic British um, baking books that people, like, grew up and learned how to cope with. So these are your two judges. Your two presenters for the show are Mel um, and Sue Perkins. What's Mel's last name? You know, I know it, but I can't pronounce it's it. Mel's. Yeah. yeah. They're fantastic. They're like a, a duo of like female comedians who always work together and they're so funny and everybody in the tent is super nice to each other and there's no money. So like the end of like reward when you win Bake Off is that everyone hugs you in a picnic on a green meadow while lambs are frolicking nearby and then Mary Berry and Paul Hollywood give you flowers and you get a golden cake stand. And a like, glass cake stand. Yeah, that's like lovely like <laughs> loveliness is your award so like everyone who goes into this kind of has the same mentality where you're doing it for pride oh there's no way i'm ever going to be able to pronounce mel's last name sorry mel you'll just be mel of sue and mel yeah um, yeah like there's no it starts with a g and then some other consonants happened um that's why she speaks so many languages she did she's she's like, she, a, like a, she's like a language degree yeah yeah um, she's so smart, and then you, like, see the things that they joke about, and you're like, ah, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the show's lovely, so that is, like, the context of it, and every episode, they start off with the, what they call a signature bake, so they pick, like, a classic, um, like, baking challenge for them, which is, like, sometimes they're, like, make a Victoria sponge, which is a very specific British dessert cake, or they'll say, like, make, um, a Battenberg, make, like, I don't know, like croissant, make something like that. 
Um, and then they'll have the next one, which is <laughs> like the death trap, aka called the technical. I love the technicals best, and I think that everyone does because they're so awful. No. You don't like the technicals? No, I love the showstopper the best. The technical, like, basically gives me a heart attack. They're like, here's half a recipe. Not, like, the first half or the last half. It's just, like, we only gave you half of all of the details you need. It's basically, like, one of either Paul or Mary's recipes. And they always pick something incredibly obscure. They, like, deliberately pick, like, the weirdest, most finicky things. And then, like, strategically delete pieces of the recipe. So it's basically like a recipe Mad Lips. Where you just have to be like, yeah, okay, I I guess the thing is going to go here. Yeah, so they'll do things like they'll give you the full list of ingredients. And they'll tell you, like, the oven temp needs to be, like, gas mark for but then, like, will not tell you the time that you need to be making it for, or, like, what it should look like when it comes out of the oven. So a lot of times you're dealing with these contestants who are like, I've never seen one of these. I've never eaten one of these. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. So, like, what my favorite results on the technicals are when all of them are kind of, like, looking at each other's shit after it comes out of the <laughs> oven, and they're like, why does it look like <laughs> I like it when they just line them up and you just see Paul and Mary like look at them before they yeah. judge them and they're just like, hmm. <laughs> well, this is this is quite something here. Yeah, yeah, this was flour that was used to cook a thing. Yep. Yeah, um, so that's the technical. And then the third um challenge per week is the showstopper. And MK, since you like it, do you want to talk about the showstopper? Yes. So the showstopper is where they say, you have to make something, uh, like, let's say you have to make a three-tiered cake, but you have to make it, like, the most elaborate, intense, crazy version of that possible. And everyone will do, like, their own take on whatever the basic challenge is. Um, And it is just, like, as crazy as you could possibly get. Like, people, one of them made a functioning well like there was a cake on top and there was a chocolate bucket and you could lower the chocolate bucket into liquid white chocolate and like wheel it back up to have some didn't one guy like remember paul who like made the like alliance face yes out out of bread which is like still the craziest thing i've ever seen like i'm not saying like this is like a little cartoon lion face it's like he made like a straight up fucking lion's face out of bread it was like a sculpture of simba made from like six different kinds of bread and some olives (laughs) but then you'll have like some of the showstoppers where it's literally things where you know everyone talks about it as if it's like a thing that you know is very common or whatever and i'm like you're trying to make a sculpture out of a clairs like what is Oh, yeah, whenever they're like, this is just a normal centerpiece at a party. And I'm like, what kind of parties are you going to? Are we all thinking about the same one about the nun-shaped eclair tower? Yes! Where I was like, what the fuck is this? But then you have, like, the great versions of that, which is, like, you know, Nadia making that amazing, um, the, the, uh, the peacock. Yeah, yeah. The peacock was beautiful. The peacock was stunning. Soda? Yeah, exactly. And, like, that's the thing is that when... <coughs> When the showstoppers actually come off, they're, like, they're genuinely breathtaking. You're yeah. just, like, this is, you know, the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. I have no idea how anyone can do that kind of thing. You know, it's just, it's that sort of awe-inspiringness. And then you have the ones where you're kind of, like, you tried really hard. Oh, God, it's falling. It's falling. Poor, poor Dorette. Oh. Dorette made this cake that just, like, fell apart. 
like right in front of them and was just like melting into like the witch from the Wizard of Oz. Like it was awful. But this is the thing about the show that's so nice is the fact that like on any other cooking competition show that I watch, you know, you would see someone go up to present that thing and you would just be like, I need to look away because I don't actually want to be a witness to this person's murder by yeah. justice, you know? And you and you see her bring that up and you and it's one of those things where like every single contestant on the show is one of those like children who doesn't even need to be punished because like, <laughs> because like the shame of having done what they did and having to present it to Mary and Paul is punishment enough. Yeah. And so, and so like you have both of, you know, and I mean like, again, like Paul is the mean one, but like even his commentary, like sometimes he can be a dick where you're just sort of like, well, you're just okay. You know, like sit down. You're relentlessly trolling people. Exactly. Exactly, where, like, you're, you know, you're doing that kind of thing. But even, even comparatively speaking, it's not, you know, and, and the thing with Mary Berry is that, like, she's not going to lie to you. Like, she's not going to tell you that it's good when it's not. You know, she does find, if there is a positive to tell you about the thing, she will say it. But she doesn't hesitate to say, you know, it doesn't taste the way that I would like it to or something like that. And the other thing that I think that we've, like, completely didn't mention is that none of these people are trained bakers. Oh, yeah, they're home bakers. They're all home bakers. And, like, I didn't know this until recently, but apparently, MK, what were you saying? That they're not, like, the cost of their ingredients aren't covered until they reach the semifinals? That's right. They have to pay for everything they use for practice and everything they use on the show until they make the semifinals, and then the show covers it. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's unbelievable because these people have to practice so much. Well, and, and just like, the, and the time it yeah. takes to do, to be a contestant on the show, like, not even just in terms of the, like, the two 12-hour days of filming that they're clearly doing on every weekend. Because that's the other thing that's amazing about the show, is that you have American cooking shows. I'm sorry that I keep on, like, being like, well, in America, this is how it's done. But it's just, you know, it's the point of comparison that I have. And and it's it's so obvious like it's so apparent just in terms of how it functions which is that you know in the u.s the whole thing is that like when you go on one of these shows like you're you're giving up your normal life in order to like go after your dream of whatever it is and like and so you you know most people have like either like quit their jobs or they're like away from their families for like weeks and weeks and weeks and like there's this whole sort of like boot camp isolationist (laughs) aspect of (laughs) yes to be on a cooking competition show in the U.S. And with Great Bridge Bake Off, it's just, it's your weekends, and then you go back to your normal life during the work week so that you can bake for, like, 40 hours on top of your regular life in order to prepare to do the, like, you know, the three-hour signature and then the four-hour, you know, showstopper, because that's how long these bakes tend to be because they're so complex. Plus set up and judging. Yeah, and, like... And so there's just, there is a, there's an investment that feels very different than, you know, you don't have the same sort of feeling of like, it might not have been cooking, but you were probably going to end up on a reality show of some (laughs) kind. Also, I think it also does like a great, so this is a show that we're, like for all the, um, I'm also going to do the same thing, like American reality shows, especially like cooking reality shows will always have that like one guy on top chef who's like missing the birth of his child <laughs> to be on top chef 
Um, and don't worry, like, I fucking love Top Chef. I, like, ride or die for Top Chef. So, like, we'll get to that, fans. We'll get to that. Um, we can be, like, crazy together. But, like, for all the, like, people will involve, like, fucking sad family backstories, like, this is a show that actually feels like their families are present. Mm-hmm. Like, they talk about, like, feed, like, these cakes they're making because their kids love them or their kids, like, had eaten so many of them during the week as they were practicing. Or, um, and you see more of their families because, mm-hmm. and I think that all of them are nicer and human and because they get to, like, leave the fucking tent, right, go home and practice. And, like, the goal is not to trick you. The goal is not to intentionally trip you up. The goal is, like, to challenge you to do the best baking that you can do. And, like, the format of it is clearly, like, clearly designed to help you be good. But, yeah, well, and actually one of the things, one of the ways you can kind of tell that, and one of the things that I love about Great British Bake Off that I realize is different, and one of the things I don't like about a lot of other cooking competition shows is that a lot of them tend to focus on the group challenges. Yeah. And, like... And for me, as a viewer, like, I understand what they're doing with mm-hmm. those sorts of challenges, but I fucking hate them because yeah. they works. always end up feeling so unfair to me because it's not actually about the quality of your cooking or whatever it is that you're producing. It's about how well you learn how to game the system of being on a group project in school. Oh, my God. I feel like we're all still traumatized from those. <laughs> like, yeah. Literally- always feels like to me and with the great british bake off you're always all of them are always just they're doing their bakes and there's and like they're competing with the other contestants but they're not competing in the same way where like where they have to worry that you know if nadia does one thing wrong or if paul does something wrong you know or if like if anyone else fucks up it's going to negatively impact them yeah yeah that they can get taken down with them and so there's very little that ever pits the contestants against each other in that sort of way beyond the, you know, overarching desire to be the best. There's know? also <laughs> the thing that I really like in Great British Bake Off is, like, people help each other. So, like, very early on, they were doing, uh, like, those roll cakes where you, like, put yeah. filling and you roll it. And one guy, Alvin, had, like, put way too much filling in. And Paul just turns around and is like, can I help you with that, Alvin? And just, like, leaves his bench and goes over and, like, helps him figure out how to roll his fucking cake. Yeah. Oh, so sweet. I mean, so, I, I think we've, like, gone through a lot of what makes Great British Bake Off great. Let's talk... Oh, can I just, um, I'm sorry. I just yeah, yeah. To, like, um, this, in terms of a transition into talking about, like, the way that other countries uh shows tend to be in other uh, things like that i was reading there was an article about the british bake-off in the guardian i think last week because i was sort of talking about the way that you know it's a great show and it's also a show that like deliberately celebrates like the idea of the english middle class and like the idea of having enough time and enough money to do something like baking and like spending the time to make that for your family um and also to do something that the upper classes are probably not going to be spending that amount of time perfecting, you know, yeah, that, that kind of thing. Um, but the, the thing that's interesting about it in terms of what it's selling and like what you kind of get from watching that is that they're not, it's not an aspirational show in the same way no. that most American cooking shows are that it's about sort of celebrating this ideal of the English middle class and like where they already are. Whereas, like, most 
you know, like MasterChef or Top Chef or something like that. It's about, it's about winning and it's about getting that quarter of a million dollars. And it's about like, book deal. yeah. And it's a, and it's about the idea of the American dream of like, you too can become wealthy from doing this thing that, you know, is actually just about surviving at its basic, yeah. you know, like, and, and just like the difference in terms of that, that we're like, that plays in with the, with the lack of like the monetary prize and the lack yeah. of anything other than you won. And that is the prize, you know? Yeah. So, oh, so what I was going to say is now that we've discussed all the things that we love about um, Bake Off in general, let us talk about this season in particular mm-hmm. and specifically about our top three and who won. Guys, I wept like a ruined woman the last <laughs> 10 minutes of the finale of Bake Off. And so did a lot of other people. 14 million people watched the finale of the Great British Bake Off. For comparison, I don't think, I feel like Empire draws those numbers in the U.S. Yeah, well, I mean, the, um... It's something like the only, uh, this was in 2014, the, you know, the top rated um, episodes of anything in England for that entire year <laughs> were two matches from the World Cup <laughs> and the Great British Big Off finale. Yeah. Like, that's, that's how big it is. It's like, it's, it's the appointment television thing. And, like, everyone stops and watches it. You know, like, the thing is, like, I'm usually... One of those people who's like not about spoilers. I don't mind that much. I kind of like the journey more than the, like the the end results. But like, and I will like totally stay on social media for all sorts of shit, right? But like when Bake Off went, I had to like get off of Twitter and Tumblr. I like blocked all mention for like the three weeks until I could actually watch the finale. And I'm so glad I did, mm-hmm. so that like at the end I could be like weeping wretchedly into my shirt cuffs. And my like collar because guys, Nadia, 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 Nadia is the greatest. She's so so great. Like she's the greatest. Like and 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 like I'm so so happy that she won. And it's also so lovely to have had a finale where it's not that like she did okay, but the other two fell apart. No, she's literally that the three of them all did really well, all had like incredibly successful signature bakes in particular. It's just that Nadia was the best. And like, and she has like, (laughs) you know, like even going into this, like if you want to talk about beyond the fact that like Nadia was just lovely and did like an amazing signature and an amazing technical and like really kicked ass on the showstopper. We can talk about like sort of the really lovely optics of the finale. Mm-hmm. Um, and like this season in particular was great. Like, so the the final three, it was Paul. No, Ian. Sorry. Ian. And, oh God. Yeah. I like how mentally etiquette. Ian is a lovely person. I'm sure that Ian is a very nice man, mm-hmm. but like, Everyone who watched Bake Off this season, I think, is, like, with me, where we're like, I'm sure Ian's nice. Yeah. But we are glad that Ian did not win. There was something about Ian that just, like, like, I'm, like, you seem like a nice guy. You're just incredibly uninteresting to me. You're just, like, so, uh, like, you're such a thing. Like, I don't even know if it's hippie, but, like, you raid the hedgerows for things. You cooked roadkill once. Like, you oh you are a time and a place yeah. in from Great British Bake Off such a nice man 
clearly a very good baker, but he also won Star Baker, like, three times in a row. Three times in a row. Yeah. Which, wait, like, wait. Can we say the most I, interesting thing about Ian is actually that he was like, I guess the reason I entered is because my wife wanted to go to the tea party, and she was like, yeah. this was a mistake. <laughs> that was, I mean, like, that was very sweet. Yeah, and the fact that his children, like, were doubtful of his prospects. Yeah, they're like, like, mm. like, like it, it, it's not, but that's the thing about Ian, is that it's not that there's anything actual, actually, like, objectionable about him. Like, he's not, he's not, he, there's oh very... Oh my god, you know what I figured it out? Mm. Okay, so Ian... Is that guy, so? This will make more sense if you've like watched a little bit of British television. But if you do you remember the show Outnumbered, mm-hmm. so basically it's a show about like a family that has three children. Thus, the father and mother are outnumbered, and their lives are like a disaster area, and their children are hilarious and like deranged. Ian is like this super together hippie guy who would live next door to mm-hmm. them and make them look bad. Everything, even though he's not actively trying, right? Like, they're, like, the outnumbered family's children would be covered in, like, dog poop from, like, an invent- a, a misadventure that day. And Ian's children would be, like, charmingly speckled in blackberry juice because they went burying that day in the ground. <laughs> so, like, that is the sort of situation with Ian. Yep. Yeah, and, and like, and, and he's, he's so, like, for a reality show, like, he, you know, he's not a villain. No. Like, he's not someone you, you, like, rejoice in him doing poorly or anything like that. Like, he's not, he's not the guy that you love to hate. Nope. He's just not, he's just not my favorite. Like, he's not one of the ones that I was always like, oh, do go on. You yeah. know? He was just like, Ian, of course you cooked roadkill. Right. Of course you cooked roadkill. He was also the guy who made the chocolate well. Yes. So yeah. it's not like he was, a, a, like, he was no slump. He was well, right. and fucking like, and, great. And his signature bake was, you know, five perfect carrot cakes yeah. on a, you know, on a display thing that he built himself <laughs> to bring with, like, and, and that sort of, like, there's such a hobbyist, like, yes. mentality, uh, not just for him, but for, like, the show oh, in general, like, that, 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 is, that is such an element of, like, what the show is celebrating, that it's, it's deliberately the amateurness of their skill, you yeah. know, that it's, it's not professional, and yet they're making these amazing, incredible things that they just happen to whip up at home. Like, yeah. it's such, and he, and he epitomizes that particular <laughs> of it like he and flora like both had their yeah. own sort of like like elements of that particular thing um so he but the other thing about ian right is that he was literally the only white person on the finale which i think was really interesting yeah so ian was like our like thin white guy who was like busy taking his children burying and like making me feel inadequate even though i'm not like married and i don't have children i just like <laughs> was like I don't like you because we're gonna go to the PTA meeting and my children will be covered in filth <laughs> and like be there because they're in trouble and yours will be like doing a play and like eating organic pears and I already hate you for being a better <laughs> um, so the other two people <laughs> I've thought about this a lot clearly I've had a lot of feelings just like Ian like preemptively making me feel like a bad mother is like something that I really was not prepared for is so lovely so tamal is an anesthesiologist is that how you say that 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because that word is, is long and complicated and full of vowels. Um, and he is just, like, so handsome and so nice and, like, just, like, gently, sweetly funny. Like, he's just, like, the greatest thing about Tamal is looking at Twitter and just seeing, like, all of England, like, all of the UK, frankly, being, like, oh, Tamal, you can inject me anytime. Like, literally every episode is just people getting real thirsty for Tamal. <laughs> and, then, and I love that he then did an interview, like, right before the finale, and, like, they were like, so do you have a girlfriend? And he was like, no, and actually I would be looking for a boyfriend anyway. And, like, at which point he was like, wow, my, my mentions are really interesting right now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. But I would 100% watch either a new reality show that is just about, like, him and Nadia going off on adventures together. That's all. Or a dating show for Tamal. Because, like, oh my god, what if Nadia got to pick right. Tamal was dating? Oh my I god. Just, I just want, like, a Yenta show for Tamal. Oh lord. So badly. Like, it's just... Which also, like, if you put this in context, like, in addition to everything else, Tamal was actively, he's like a trainee anesthesiologist. He was still doing his shifts at the hospital. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. was taking his exams or something. Yeah. Like, he was, like, the, yeah, like, every year there's at least one person where it's sort of like, yes, and, you know, she got her A-levels. Or like, oh, yes, and she finished university. And you're just kind of like, how? Okay. So, apologize to everyone listening to this. Because Nell and I just got Thai delivery. And we're monsters, and we're starving, so we're just gonna eat. But okay, keep talking about Tamal. Okay, so Tamal and Nadia are basically best friends, and it's so great because you get to see their friendship like develop over the course of the show. Like they start off, and everyone is kind of getting to know each other, and then gradually you realize that like Tamal and Nadia have a great uh, rapport, and they're just like big sister, little brother mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, definitely. She's sort of like a little bit mothering towards him, but like they're more on the same level. So it is more of that sibling vibe. Um, and in the finale, like just like the moment that everyone was like, yes, was like Tamal crouching down to talk to Nadia's kids and being like, your mommy says that you're having me over for dinner soon. So like, I'll see you next week. It'll be very exciting. Yeah, when that happened, I like could not contain myself. And I think that is the moment that literally everyone watching this was like, are Tamal and Nadia getting their own TV show? Please say yes. I would watch every single second of that show. <laughs> yeah. Um, other favorite contestants from this season? Definitely. Uh, hey, you have to talk about Nadia. Oh, yeah. So Nadia is a delight because her facial expressions don't make sense. And, like, like, yeah, she always looks terrified. Like, she was trying to be sympathetic to someone, and it looked like she was either judging her or afraid for her life. Her her eyebrows are so amazing in terms of, like, I mean, their cartoon eyebrows were, like, they, they express entire emotions with, like, just the smallest little like, story. <laughs> like you're like, I don't understand like how you cannot look away from her. Her eyebrow game is so strong. So strong. There so was that strong. One, that one episode, I can't remember which week it was, but where she almost went home and like it was down between her and one other person. Ooh. Right, exactly. And it was so and like and I didn't want her to go because I love her, but I was also like, this will be we will be poorer for not getting to see her face every week yeah. while she's trying to pull off 
I think BuzzFeed literally made a post that was just like Nadia's best reactions throughout this entire, and I was like, yeah, I'll click on that. 100%. thing about Nadia's like arc on the show is that she starts off so timid Mm -hmm. and like so doubting and like trembling constantly like so afraid and unsure of herself and at the end she shows the way she shows courage the way that real people have courage where she doesn't necessarily she's not like certain that she'll do well but she has the confidence to try yeah like her speech at the end of Bake Off made like 14 million people cry because she literally is like I, I never believed in myself. And after this, I'm like, never going to limit myself again. I'm never going to say I can't do this. And like the interview with her husband, she has three little kids and her husband has been doing a lot of like household stuff. Like while she's been busy with Vega and he's like, I really wanted her to do this because this is like the first thing she's really done for herself. Yeah. And like how lovely, like this whole thing was like so about her, but like also like her kids are so like when she won Star Baker for the first time and she called her family and, and she's like, like crying so proud of her and like her okay when they announced that she was the winner and like I think it's the guy that was jumping up and down was her dad yeah like, so cute like her entire family was ecstatic with pride and like we were all ecstatic with pride we were all weeping it was bad <laughs> just seeing her family or just like everyone in her family is adorable they all love her so much like visibly love her so much and you're just like what a supportive caring like these people all seem wonderful like every single one of them most of them have never even said a word on camera and I'm like I love you I love everybody. <laughs> I also love that um, apparently, that apparently all of Britain was basically in love with her husband too because he's so great. And I'm just like, yes, absolutely. Like we should be celebrating this. And like, but more to the point, it's, it's like it's just this show that's about like celebrating domesticity in this way that's really yeah. lovely. And like it's and it, and it feels genuine and it feels like the kind of like this is what you can create for your home and this is what you can, you know, give to your loved ones that, like, just does feel genuinely um, just lovely rather than having any of the, like, legation or any of the, like, um, you know, the burden of I'm baking for my family or I'm, you know, taking care of my family, that it's something that all of these people do because they love and do yeah. because it's something they get to share. And I, and I do love the fact that every year the, you know, the gender divide of contestants is even where it's, you know, there, there are a bunch of men who are also baking and like, you know, they sort of run the gamut of like what their stories are as well. And you're kind of like, how did, how did these men start baking in this way? Like, where did that come in for them as well? You know, rather than it being, you know, it, it, rather than it being just a thing that women are supposed to do yeah. by default. One yeah. of my favorite bakers ever on Bake Off was Richard from mm-hmm. last series who is a builder. So he's like literally a contractor. And he always has like a pencil tucked behind his ear. Um, And he's like a marvelous baker. And he has like three little daughters. So he would constantly like make really like gorgeously floral and red or pink. Yeah. Really. It's just a great show. Yeah. And it it celebrates like that aspect of, you know, of making things for your family, whether or not it's your family of, like, you know, you and, and your spouse and your children, or if it's your family of, like, all of your friends who you live with, or if it's, like, you your know... family of the 14 million people who are watching it on the beam. Sure, you know, but, but like, it, exactly. It, it's not about, like, well, this is what the family is supposed to look like, mm-hmm. you know, 
in, in quite that, that, that kind of like prescriptive term is it's just like you bake for the people that you love and like you, you know, you bring things into the office because you know, you want to make the people that you work with happy. And there's, there is of course that like aspect of showing off as well too, where like everyone on the show also bakes because someone told them, Oh, you're good at this. Yeah. And it's a way that they can be recognized for that. And yeah, it's just, it's really lovely. Yeah. It's great. There's a real um, camaraderie. So I, I mean, like, I think we've said the word lovely three million times, which means that we need to transition to the next show on the slate. And MK, you are going to have to take the lead on this one. Take it away. Yes. Okay. So before I knew about Great British Bake Off, uh, I was looking for a cooking show to watch because I fucking love cooking shows. And somewhere on the internet, let's not say where, um, I randomly discovered that MasterChef Australia is a thing that exists and that instead of having like 20 odd episodes in a season, they have 70 to 80 episodes per season. Um, and I was like, that's perfect. I need something to take up a lot of time. Uh, the thing about MasterChef Australia that I always try to like convey to people and it's like impossible until you watch it is everything that you have said that you love about the Great British Bake Off is what I love about MasterChef Australia. Mm. MasterChef Australia might as well be completely unrelated to actual MasterChef other than maybe MasterChef Junior. Like, it's so different. <clears throat> they still have, like, a big money prize and you get a car and you get a cookbook deal or whatever. All of that still exists. Except that every single person on the show is there, like, to make friends to support each other, and then, like, I guess they're going to do some cooking. Like, literally multiple times, the judges have had to be like, guys, it's the season finale. This show isn't just about friendship. You need to cook <laughs> your heart out. Like, literally multiple times, they have had to tell people it's not just about friendship. Basically, MasterChef Australia is, like, shonen cooking anime. Yeah. Like, my friends and I refer to it as MasterChef Friendship is Magic. Like... It's so fucking amazing. Um, every episode is like an hour and a half plus commercials, and it airs five or six times a week in Australia. What the fuck? Yeah, I don't know how they do this. I don't know, like, what's happening in Australia, but they were like, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it fucking big. Um, the most important thing is there is one season of MasterChef Australia, and this is the first one I watched, and it's like, it ruined me for all cooking shows always is season six. And season six, um, like normally you, you put out the casting call for these cooking shows and you're going to get like a range of people, right? You're going to get people who are like, okay, or okay enough to get on the show. You're going to get people who are like standouts and like, you can pretty much tell who's going to be in the final by the end. Mm -hmm. In season six, I would say 90% of the people who applied and they start with like 24 people all could have probably made it to the final. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like, it was one weekend, and the judges were like, we're going to have to increase the difficulty because you're all too good. Like, everything is too perfect. It's, it's <coughs> we don't know what to do with you guys. One of the things I love about it is that on most cooking shows, let's say that you have, like, a challenge, and there's, like, a little prize at the end of the challenge. The prize in a challenge in MasterChef Australia is that you get to go on to another challenge, which then lets <laughs> you, if you win that one, go on to another challenge. Like, sometimes you win an advantage, but generally speaking, it is you just get to cook some more, and they're all very happy about that. Um, they also have, 
weeks, like entire weeks, where they get to cook with amazing, amazing chefs. So they have an entire week where Heston Blumenthal comes on the show and sets that weirdo, weirdo, but like one sets every single challenge, spends the entire week with them and then gives them a cooking class. Like specifically they stop competing. They leave town. They all go to the countryside and they just spend like an entire day taking cooking lessons from Heston Blumenthal. Does he like rent a backhoe to like dig something or anything? Because his level of brand of weirdness is close and dear to my heart. (laughs) No, but he does, you know, always have his liquid nitrogen with him. Good. Very important. Very important. Well, you never know where you're going to use it. Yeah, literally, you could use that for anything. So it's very important to have on hand. Um, The other chef who is my favorite chef that they have on is Marco Pierre White. Um, If you don't know who Marco Pierre White is, because I, like, learned about him by watching this, he is a guy (laughs) who grew up in England but really loved French food. And he was like, you know what? I want to have, like, the first three-star Michelin restaurant in England cooking French food. And people were like, kid, you're fucking crazy. Start cutting some onions. And he was like, I'm gonna do it. And he did. And he is the youngest person to have ever done it. He did it incredibly fast. And he is famous for making Gordon Ramsay cry. What's his restaurant for? Um, that is a good question that I can't remember the answer to. He has like a bunch of restaurants. Okay. Um, So one of the things about Marco is that he has a very stern face. Like he looks terrifying. And the things that he says sound like a cross between something Sailor Moon would say and something a Sailor Moon villain would say, but like in the tone of a villain. So like one time uh, he comes into the kitchen, they're all going to do a mystery box. They're all like working on their mystery boxes. And he just like quietly walks up to somebody's bench and he's just, staring intently at this woman and she like freezes mid cooking and is just kind of staring back at him like an abject terror you can see her start shaking (laughs) and then she starts crying and he's like don't cry never let them see your tears and then she like walks away and you're like what what is that your cooking advice are they zoocyte like (laughs) (laughs) yeah essentially Except that, like, every once in a while, he'll come back and he'll just be like, the most important thing is to have a dream. It doesn't matter if you fail now. Like, you can achieve your dreams if you believe in it with your whole heart. But he says it, like, in the tone of a supervillain. It's like a very heartwarming message from evil. (laughs) Like, I don't know how to explain him other than he is terrifying and my favorite. Like, he is so wonderful. a lot of sense (laughs) for Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the challenges that Gordon set, or sorry, that uh, Marco set for the contestants was there were three people who had done very well that week. And he brought them up to the front and he was like, um, do all of you know how to dice an onion? And they're all like, yeah, of course. And he pulls out an onion and he starts, like, he peels it, cuts it in half and starts dicing it into basically sand without <coughs> ever looking down. And it's like lightning fast. Like he's just Again, dead-eye shark staring at them, turning this onion into sand. And he's like, this is my standard of dicing an onion. And you see them all, like, start to get scared. And then he says, I'm going to give each of you an onion. The first person to dice an onion to my standard gets to go into the next challenge. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so they start chopping. 
one guy is like working on it and he thinks he's doing pretty well. He's going pretty fast. And Marco walks up to him and is like, would you call that a finely diced onion? And the guy's like, yes. And Marco just stares at him and he's like, no. <laughs> Marco's like, would you like me to get you a new onion? He's like, yes, Marco. And Marco clears his bench and then picks up the biggest fucking onion he can find and sets it down. Is like, start over. That's beautiful. It's so beautiful. So, you know how, like, when I introduce people to Miss Fisher, I'm like, just watch, like, ten minutes of this and you'll love it? Yeah. Generally the same, like, it has the Miss Fisher effect where everyone I have ever shown MasterChef Australia to, as long as you start, like, past the auditions, right? You have to get past the auditions because that's always painful in any cooking show. Um, But once you start watching the actual show, it's, like, riveting and nobody who has seen it has been like, I don't like this. They're all like, where can I get the rest of this immediately? (laughs) Um, And just like the contestants who will be watching other people compete will be like yelling advice from up above. They'll be like reading the recipe to them. They'll be like, oh my God, turn around. Don't forget to like fix your pot. It's going to boil over. Or like, here's a technique that you don't know how to use that I will teach you right now by yelling at you from above. Like, I want you to succeed. It's just, it's lovely the way Great British Bake Off is, except that there is way more of it, and you still have, like, the big stupid prize and, like, the boot camp mentality of other Americanized cooking shows. Hmm. Yeah, so I love it. I highly recommend it. But season six, like, start with season six. All right, that's good to know. Yeah. I've actually just been, um doing a watch of all of uh, season three of the original MasterChef. And, like, I actually first started watching MasterChef as a result of MasterChef Junior. Of course. Which is so delightful because it basically, it eliminates so many of the things about, like, those kinds of American competitive cooking shows that I get frustrated with, you know, and then I find it harder, like, I find it much easier in many ways to marathon MasterChef Junior than I do the adult versions, <laughs> because... You don't hate anyone, right? Yeah, like, you know, even when you do hate a couple of the kids, like, you feel bad, like, there's that certain level of, like, you just, you genuinely do not know... Guys, you heard it here first, she hates children. <laughs> Noted. Um... And, but also just that there, there is actually more of a, like, teaching mentality. You just get to see, and, like, Gordon Ramsay is, like, so genuinely wonderful with children. Yep. Like, the way that he interacts with them, like, the, there is, there is an ease and a naturalness to how he engages with all of them that, like, cannot just be put on. Like, there is not... It's too genuine for it to just be this thing that he's like, and now I'm going to be the you know the funny English dude with these kids. Like you can tell that he just really likes being around children. You know, I, th- I think the funny thing about this, and this is like kind of a Gordon Ramsay aside. Like I actually love Gordon Ramsay mm-hmm. in general, and I think the thing that like I hate all of Gordon Ramsay's American shows. Yeah, like I will watch MasterChef Junior because I. I'm only fucking human, guys. I will watch <laughs> MasterChef Junior. But I generally speaking, don't watch MasterChef. There have been a couple of oddities. Like, there was a guy one season from Astoria, so, like, obviously I had to watch and represent. And also, he had to catch a turkey and failed at it, so that was great and worth the price of admission. Um, 
But generally speaking, if you don't watch Gordon Ramsay's, like, American stuff, because he very much has a persona mm-hmm. in American cooking shows, like Hell's Kitchen, for example, where he's just, like, a terrifying nightmare. But then, like, the type of people who would go onto Hell's Kitchen are an insult to Gordon Ramsay's kitchens. Like, anyone who is an actual good chef, who has, like, the possibility of being a good cook is not going to go on something like Hell's Kitchen. Right. Which is, like, a show that is basically designed to, like, make Gordon Ramsay scream, like, hilarious food-based insults at your face as loudly as possible. But, like, his other other shows, um, like, any of his British cooking shows, much more relaxed. Mm -hmm. And he's also, like, even on MasterChef, the adult version... He's, like, occasionally, he's, like, snarky. Right. But he's not, like, a monster. He's, like, a very seasoned, experienced chef who is teaching you. And he will teach you at a higher decibel if you are an adult than if you are a child. Because, like, you are learning as a child. You are supposed to make mistakes. If you are, like, actively working in his kitchen, Mm -hmm. he will fuck you up if you make a mistake. Like, that's, he, I think he explained once that was his whole mentality. Because people were, like... Gordon Ramsay, whose every other word is an F-bomb, should you be allowed to interact with children? And he's like, I'm screaming at these guys because they're supposed to be professionals. Right. They should know how to cook. They should not be putting raw chicken on anybody's fucking plate. These are children. They are learning. Right. This is a teaching show. So it's like a completely different context. And I think that's why Master Show Jr. is like a warm blanket and a nice cup of tea. Well, and, like, the, the season of MasterChef that I'm actually um, almost done watching is um, season three, which was from three years ago, because this past summer's was season six, and I, I watched that one as well, and it was fine. But season six had the issue of, and this happens all the time on cooking competitions, where there are always those white dudes, like, you know, <laughs> like, where they're, they, where they're, they're just... They're so arrogant and they're so obnoxious. And like, that's the entire persona of what it is that they're presenting. And you just want to murder all of them. Mm -hmm. And like, and even when they're good, that's worse. Like, cause when they're bad and they manage to skate through, you know, they're about to get their comeuppance and it's going to be great. But like, it's always so annoying when you have these guys where you're like, you're just a miserable human being and you're being rewarded for it over and over and over and over again. And there was a little bit too much of that during season six to really make it palatable to me. The thing that's fantastic about season three without any like major spoilers or anything is that there, there are a couple of like, you know, a particular sort of white dude, but they don't triumph at all. And if anything, the entire season is sort of about, you know, the one or two guys who aren't terrible actually doing much better and in general the um the best contestants on the show I know who won so like it's not even a spoiler from that standpoint but like it's very satisfying to watch because you're like I know what's going to happen and it's not going to be you and (laughs) um and like I like that too because the way that the way that Gordon is with those contestants is very much like he does actually take them down a peg the yeah. way that I want him to. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's a definite aspect of like wish fulfillment in terms of how he gets to approach certain personality types like that. Even when I would be totally happy getting to see an entire season's worth of like MasterChef or any of these kinds of shows that just had no 
white straight dudes. Like imagine that. <laughs> like imagine an entire season of Top Chef. That's that a dream. Have a single straight white dude. I feel like it would be really difficult. Specific, and we'll, we can talk about it more because the specific aesthetic. Yes. And the pool from which Top Chef is drawn from. One hundred percent. Like I mean, it would be. You know, it, it would. It would definitely be a gimmick, you know. Yeah. Also, in in that particular way, but it's not that it's not that I hate all the white dudes that are on shows like that, and it's not that you know, and it's not that it's always the white dudes specifically that I hate. Like, but it's a trope. It's like it's exactly like that is that is very much something that is you know they cast for having mm-hmm. at least a couple of those in every season, and and like and that's a character trope. That you don't encounter in the same way on the Great British Bake Off at all. Yeah. Which I also really appreciate. <laughs> like, even when you do occasionally get like the PE teacher, he's Stuart, and he's just <laughs> you know, just bless him. <laughs> like he's trying so hard and you know, makes a tomato upside down cake. And so what can you really say at a certain point? <laughs> um, yes. But yeah, uh, but yeah, I would say if, if if you are interested in MasterChef and it's not a show that you've watched particularly, that um, you can you can pretty easily on Daily Motion find all of season three of MasterChef and it's pretty delightful. And all of the MasterChef juniors are still on Hulu. I'm pretty sure at this yeah. point, and they're all delightful. They're great. Like, and um, I'm sure that if you search MasterChef Australia. Mm-hmm. streaming, mm. <laughs> you'd be able to locate it. You can find pretty much any cooking show we're going to talk about somewhere. On the internet. Yes. Yeah. We'll say that. It's available. Okay. Yeah. Obtaining past seasons of Great British Bake Off is more challenging than I feel like it should be. Oh, but. that's, I've only ever seen two seasons, last season and this season. And that's yeah. because I, even on the resources that I have available. <laughs> I can't find the past ones. I I may be able to help you out. That we should be- treasure them as like an ephemeral, beautiful thing that happened to us. It's sometimes. true. Um, so those are all like the good shows, the sui generis shows, the shows that have like redeeming qualities and charms that we like and that are not American. Let's get back to... Probably, like, the, I, I don't even know, like, the fucking, like, biggest cooking show, challenge show in the U.S., which is, like, my ride-or-die, like, cooking challenge show. Like, I will fight you if you spoil me for it. Like, I will, like, it's actually, like, the show where I will, like, shut down all other social obligations. I'll be, like, oh, what? You want me to go to a party? Fuck that. I have to go sit on my fucking couch in pajamas and swear at the television <laughs> as I watch Top Chef. So, my love of Top Chef runs <coughs> I'm getting that impression from you right now. So deep. Yeah, so a little like, bit. Top Chef is, um, Top Chef is like a Bravo, t- in case you haven't heard of it, <laughs> Top Chef is a Bravo, tel- like a Bravo channel, like cooking reality competition. Um, the judges on that show, like the show is basically executive produced by Tom Colicchio, who is a very well-regarded, successful chef who owns a string of restaurants across the country. 
Um, generally speaking, like everyone basically looks at Tom as like a real like luminary among the cooking industry in the U.S. Like he very much like fight. He has a lot of like philanthropic causes, like anti-hunger, like anti-child hunger causes. He's slowly transitioning his restaurants not to need tipping. So he's incorporating like the increased price disparity and stuff into his food as well. Just very talented, well-regarded chef. His um, co-host is Padma Lakshmi, who I think most people know as a model. I did not know Padma was a model because I had actually grown up watching her on um, Globe Trekker travel shows. And she actually has like a really good background, not like in cooking specifically. She actually has like a really fulsome background in eating. Like, her entire deal on Globe Trucker was she would, like, go to fucking anywhere and, like, eat random stuff all over the place. So, like, Padma Lakshmi is, like, eating bugs and, like, great food off of street carts in India. Like, she knows what she's talking about when she talks about food. And they also have, like, guest judges that come in, and they're all, like, serious cooks um, from various, you know, American restaurants as well as international restaurants. They have, um, oh, my gosh. Eric Repair and, like, you know, people from French Laundry and, like, things like that. Like, they're not fucking around when they talk about the judging. We also have, like, Anthony Bourdain and, like, some other people who are, like, more unlikable. There was, like, a weird... the guy More who wrote, unlikable. Well, do you remember, like, they, they had the guy who were, like, how to lose friends and make enemies or something oh, like that. Yeah. What? He, like, yeah, he was, like, on the show as, like, a guest judge for, like, three episodes, no, no. like, I'm sorry, I'm baffled by this concept of, like, somebody deliberately set out to do a thing that was, like, lose friends. Is this, like, an American thing? No, he's English. What? Like, yeah, he's English, and it's, like, a, it's a sarcastic title. Okay. uh, Simon Pegg actually made a movie off of the book, but, like, it didn't do well, and, like, people don't (laughs) like him. Like, the book is self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, people don't really like him, and he was an absolute dick on Top Chef. The point is... So the show was created, it was like part of the first spate of reality television that was skill-based. So it came around the same time that Project Runway started to air. Mm-hmm. And like we're talking like old halcyon days of Project Runway, where people had like more than 12 hours to put a dress together, mm-hmm. and you had actual skilled contestants, and it was based in New York as God intended, what the fuck were you thinking moving into LA, none uh-huh. of those people know how to dress themselves. Um... And just, like, it was a different world. You you had Andre taking Tim Gunn to the Red Lobster. Andre. And, like, you had early season two forever. That was just a seminal series of uh, Project Runway. But it also was when Top Chef came out. And the this hails back to the earlier discussion we were having about, like, the types of contestants that Top Chef attracts. Top Chef is not for amateurs, right? Top Chef is not for home cooks. Top Chef is genuinely, like, when you apply for Top Chef, you are genuinely needing to be a chef. If you haven't had professional training, you need to have worked extensively in professional restaurants. Like, if you look at the resumes of all the contestants every season, you are talking about, like, the sous chefs, like, the executive chefs, the private chefs, the people who run major catering businesses – these are all people who have, like, extensive professional experience in the industry. And, like, the interesting thing about the show to me is they all usually sort of know each other yeah. when they come onto the series by reputation, if nothing else. Like, oh, that guy won, like, a Best New Chef James Beard. Or, like, that guy was, like, a runner-up in, like, 
the food and wine listing or something like that. So like all of these guys actually do have some bona fides. So the challenges and like Top Chef, like any reality show has had better and worse seasons. They've had better and worse contestants. They fall very much into the like the arrogant white guy trap. One of the things I was looking up as you guys were talking about that was I was actually looking up like the list or the comparison of like what was the most annoying Top Chef, like Chef Tested. And like the winner is obviously Marcel from right. season two, right. who's like the human equivalent of like dirty gum stuck to the bottom of your fucking shoe that just like would not leave and was like Ew. just like a horrible human being who like makes me angry. And every time he's like gone long enough for me to forget how angry he makes me, he shows up again in some Top Chef challenge. I'm like, hate him all over again, <laughs> which is like really weird for me because I generally like, I'm like a robot. I just don't have that much of feelings, so I can't like waste them. I'm like hating Marcel, but I always have enough hatred for Marcel whenever he shows up. Um, the challenges on Top Chef are really aggressive and they're really hard. Um, this The episodes always start with what they call a quick fire. So it's like a 15 to 20 minute, something like that challenge where they are very much in one of those like stainless steel, high volume kitchens where they have to throw something together real quick. And sometimes it's absurd. Sometimes it actually makes sense. Sometimes it's like, make it a muse boosh. Sometimes it's like, cook with ramen. Like there's a lot, you know, it, they throw them for a loop. And the earlier seasons, I think were definitely like less gimmicky and less ridiculous, less like let's go cook for the military because there are American patriot heroes or like, let's cook with this particular brand of pre-cooked dinner for whatever. But it still is a fantastic, it's probably one of the better showcases of actual cooking skill that you are going to get in a cooking show. Like this is not fucking chopped. This is not like the next food network star. These are all like serious contestants and there are a couple of people in each year who are like fucking assholes, but these are people who like really care about cooking. And mm -hmm. I think the thing that really differentiates like the actual value or like the skill level of any reality show is what happens to the contestants after the series ends. Right. So if you look at like the people who have been on top chef, these are people who still work in the industry. They're not like showing up on other reality shows. Like blaze has like three restaurants at this point. Like, you have various people who are now like running major kitchens or like playing Sue at other places. Like these are very serious cuts. It's also a show that has like so much drama, mm -hmm. so much screaming. This is like, like this is the real world with knives, essentially is <laughs> top chef. And it's like, so good. Well, and part of it is that like, and, and, MasterChef is also amateur cooking. Like, it's very much about, like, finding the best home cook in the U.S. and blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But, like, one of the things that's really interesting about the kind of contestants that you get and the kind of challenges that you have and, in particular, the sort of tension and conflict and drama that does come up on a show like Top Chef is that professional kitchens are not serene environments. <laughs> no. So, and so, like, you're also, you, you know, you're you're doubling the pot in a certain way where you are going to end up getting, if you want talent, which they clearly do, because, you know, the, the better seasons tend to be the ones where you have genuinely exceptional chefs who really are pushing themselves and really want 
this as an, and, and you know, and I'll say like, this is an amazing opportunity. And you can always tell when you're actually dealing with chefs who do know what they would do with the money to create their own, whatever the fuck. Mm-hmm. And like, but so you end up with, with people who are both competitive enough to go on to a television show and like, and are willing to present themselves to the world in that way. On top of the fact that their actual profession is one that tends to attract that kind of personality to begin with. And the only way to get good enough is to have a thick enough skin Mm -hmm. that you can make it through in the first place. And so like, it's very, it's intensified. Like it's really, it's a really concentrated, um, sort of mix of people as a result. Top Chef is kind of like the jock Mm -hmm. of all the cooking shows I think that we've mentioned here. Like, these are absolutely, like, you know how, like, among doctors, like, surgeons are considered jocks? Mm-hmm. I feel like among the cooking shows that are on the air, Top Chef is absolutely, like, the jock of the shows. Like, these are people who will, like, slice their fucking hands open and be like, fuck it, like, put a glove over it, keep cooking. Like, everyone has ink. Like, everyone is all about, like, their burns and, like, their kitchen cred, you know? And, like, there is less of a concern about, like, I mean, I think gender and, like, some other things do come into play, but, like, it's really just about, like, a giant kitchen dick measuring context, which has its own problematic elements in it, but, like, they have turned out some fantastic people. Like, Richard Blaze is, like, a phenomenal, like, such an interesting cook, and, like, I think at this point he's a little overexposed, but, like, he was on season four of Top Chef, which is probably one of the best seasons of Top Chef ever, and he, like, catastrophically... Like, he lost it for himself in the finale. Like, he, like, literally waltzed into the finale, everyone anticipating him to win. Right. And he, like, choked in the end. I think his wife had, like, literally just had a baby. So, like, he had, like, a lot of things on his mind. (laughs) He just, like, failed. Fair enough. In the finale. What, like, using his child's excuse. How dare he? Um, But then he came back for Top Chef All-Stars, and he was, like, still great and he had like clearly learned so many lessons and he had like the greatest bromance of all time with Fabio who is like hilarious and he knows he's he has like a heavy Italian accent he's most famous for two things number one for saying it's top chef not top scallop which is like beautiful perfect never change Fabio and then number two like knowing that women dig his accent so like when they did restaurant wars he would like put it on extra thick and like work the crowd and you're like fuck you I hate you but I love you I know his friend of house was amazing like in terms of just like well and and that's exactly it is that you have contestants who actually they understand the game that they're playing yes which means that watching them play it is deeply satisfying and like I think that all of these sorts of like skill based reality shows like that's that's why I want to watch them is because there's something like deeply soothing and satisfying about it totally is about watching people who are really good at a thing do it well or try really hard and fail (laughs) but you know like you you get the same sort of like there's just like you know you get a little yeah it's 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 a nice little hit it's a nice it's a nice little satisfaction, you know, jolt. And actually, your mentioning front of house is, I think, the other thing that distinct well, not distinguishes, but like separates Top Chef from the other cooking competitions we've talked about. Like for Master Chef, I think the winning goal is like you get like a cookbook deal yeah. and money, 
for Great British Bake Off, you obviously do it for like pride and hugs and lambs. And like MasterChef Australia, is the prize also like a cookbook deal, MK? Uh, yes, plus money, plus a car, plus the chance to work in fancy restaurants. Okay, cool. So like the prize for Top Chef is you get a spread in Food and Wine magazine, which like holy shit, you end up having like a panel at like the Food and Wine Aspen Food Festival or something like that. You also um, they also give you like a fuckload of money with the presumption that you are going to use it as seed money to open your restaurant. Like that is kind of like the, like the way that top chef as a show is structured and the challenges it tends to throw you. And a lot of like the group challenges it tends to give you, especially the ones that awkwardly put people in like executive chef roles. Right. Um, especially like the most beloved top chef challenge of all, which is restaurant wars where they basically have 48 hours to create a restaurant are all geared toward winnowing out the chaff to see like who has the brass ones to be able to actually run a successful restaurant at the end. Right. And I think that's kind of what I love about it because there's so much more to it than just cooking. Right. You have to be like really good at management. You have to be really good at organizing things and you have to like, like Fabio, like actually be able to work front of house. Like the reason that he and Blaze won that episode, won Restaurant Wars, is because Blaze runs an impeccable kitchen and Fabio runs an impeccable front of house. Right. So, like, the two of them are, like, totally a restaurant power couple. Like, I think that they should just, like, create an empire unto themselves. Um, I love that show. I think I've seen, like, every single episode (laughs) of Top Chef, including, like, all the all-stars, including, like, the jewels. Mm -hmm. I think I've watched most of the online shit, and I've also watched, like, the Top Chef Masters, which are, like, um, established master chefs competing for, like, charity money. So, like, my sickness runs deep. That's, that is really impressive, because it's been on since, like, 2005 at this point. I was in college. I didn't sleep then anyways. (laughs) So, like, probably, guys, if you've been reading fanfic that I've written since, like, the 2000s, like, the early 2000s, I was probably writing that Smallville or Stargate Atlantis story while watching Top Chef. (laughs) Pulling back the curtain. Yep. Um, I think that that's, that is also one of the things about Top Chef, where even though you have the asshole white guy, like macho dude sort of persona thing, mm-hmm. one of the things that I love about it is that those group challenges do actually tend to distinguish between the guys who are just dicks <laughs> versus the guys who are dicks, but everyone listens to and listens to them, and they and they manage to get shit done, and yeah. so like. There, it's the whole thing of, like, you know, you may not like that person, but you respect them or you trust them or you think that they're going to actually get you where you want to go versus the people who are like, oh, the way to accomplish this is to be mean and actually know if you're not actually good enough, no one's going to listen to you anyway. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter how much you yell if no one actually thinks that you're confident behind all of that. Yeah. Um, so that is like that that is nice because you know you're not it's rare when you're watching Top Chef that you're like this is a person who I feel like I would have a great time you know bringing home to my family yeah in any capacity <laughs> no these are all monsters like right. none of them can cross my threshold like you're a vampire stay on the other side of the door <laughs> right. cross your threshold sounds like a real filthy euphemism <laughs> I'm just saying. I wish I could show you guys the face that I'm making right now. 
Because, like, generally speaking, when someone is like, they'll be euphemism, I'm like, I'm there with you, fist bump. But I'm like, genuinely, like, how is that? Come on. I got, like, I, I got, I'm doing, like, the open hand shaking thing. Like, I got nothing. I think you're missing out on my genius here. I, I think that's what it is. You should draw me a diagram. I don't think I should have to at this age. Like, <laughs> you know how your lady parts work, right? I'm so pure and innocent. I don't know anything. Says the lady who talked for, like, how long did you talk about menstrual cups and, like, your struggle with menstrual cups? Don't shame me. I just want to, like, go live in a red tent because I'm not supposed to have lady feelings. I'm not shaming you. I'm supporting you. <laughs> like, two hands. Oh, that was actually gross. Okay. Do we have any other cooking competition or cooking related shows we want to talk about? I have one thing to say. Hit me. Do not watch MasterChef Canada. (laughs) Just, Just don't. And... I'll put, like what's no I, let me just give you one small example and then we can never talk about it again oh which is on one episode the challenge was like to do something inspired by peanut butter and jelly and so obviously you had to include both peanut butter and jelly in your thing and That's somebody ex- went to the pantry and did not get peanut butter or jelly <laughs> the only reason they survived is because like someone else gave them some like just, just don't watch it. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I don't... Real, whenever Canada does, like, a spin-off of an American show, it's generally garbage other than Canada's Next Top Model. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Um, so this is a cooking competition show. But because, like, I think as we've established, my television viewing habits are fuzz. 98% Food Network. Like... 1% cooking channel, 1% like me binging on some shit on Netflix. Um, the shows that I kind of like watch and put on in the background is soothing. One of my favorite, if you're actually interested in learning how to cook well, one of my favorite, do not watch Barefoot Contessa 101 because I know that Ina thinks that everything that she does is simple and that she will forgive you if you don't buy the good vanilla. But, like, her shit is not actually as basic as she thinks it is, number <laughs> one. And B, like, I can feel her judging me. Like, there are very few people that I would do, like, the drag queen drop for, but, like, if I saw Ina Garden in public, I would absolutely drag drop her <laughs> immediately. Because she is, like, my queen. And, like, I am not worthy to, like, hang out with her gays who are painting their lighthouse or whatever the fuck it is that's happening on, like, some fucking random episode of Barefoot Contessa. But, like, in terms of actual learning to cook, my very, very favorite show is actually now on Netflix, and it's called America's Test Kitchen. Hmm. It's um, a show by the people who make Cook's Illustrated Magazine. And all the recipes are basically, like, meticulously tested. And they're very clear about um, process. So, like, if you were one of those cooks, quote, cooks, who, like, looks at a recipe, Emily, and gets confused about basic instructions, you should watch this show. It's not basic instructions when they assume knowledge you might not have. Emily, 
I know too much about your cooking background to fall for that one. I don't listen. <laughs> Guys, you know like how sometimes I have to remind you that Prue is fancy? <laughs> Even in cooking, Prue is fucking fancy. I've seen you in action. It's it's very different from like anyone else I've ever seen cooking who is not like a trained chef. Anyways. You know how like Ina Garten judges you? Prue judges you in the kitchen. I judge you because okay. So MK is like, this is happening. This is happening. MK is like working on like cooking more, A because it's like a little healthier, but like more important, it saves you some money. Yeah. And if you learn how to cook for yourself, you can cook things you like to eat. So you don't have to like, do I have enough money to go buy the thing I like to eat? It's like, no, I can totally eat the thing I want to eat. Um, so she's been working on that. Uh, but she also like has some interesting missteps that like you wouldn't anticipate. Like, for example, the most recent example. Come on. This could have happened to anyone. When MK bought a rotisserie chicken, and well-meaningly, because I lectured her about the importance of keeping animal carcasses, she, like, saved this chicken carcass in its little plastic container in the fridge, and then finally emailed me and was like, hey, how do I make stock? I saved a chicken carcass from this rotisserie chicken, and I was like, oh my god, I was, like, so touched, I was, like, really excited, you were gonna have chicken stock. And then I stupidly asked you how long ago you had bought the rotisserie chicken and how long the chicken carcass had been sitting in the fridge or had it been in the freezer. Suffice it to say, I was like, no, MK, even though it's mostly bone, you cannot cook with like a three week old chicken carcass. It's only like a week and a half. <laughs> you can't cook with that if it's not been in the freezer. <laughs> But, like, I've never made stock before. I buy it in, like, a thing. Just do it, like, rotting flesh. It's kept cold. How bad could it be? Dear listeners. I like watching cooking shows. I never claimed to be good. (laughs) This is why you are constantly good. I live in fear that you're going to poison yourself. No, I avoided that by not going to dad's Thanksgiving this year. That's true. Her dad is great about that. It's not even that he's cooking. He gets it catered. He just doesn't handle food tubs properly. He just, like, leaves it out for eight hours, and there's like, you should take this meat out that's been sitting at room temperature for eight hours. And I'm like, that'll give me food poisoning. And he's like, no. Yeah, there's, like, there it, it runs in the family. Um, but so America's Test Kitchen, on U.S. Netflix, like, there's, I think, 26 episodes. They run the gamut. Great, great, great instructional stuff. And another show that I sort of like. So here's a question for you guys. Are there any food-related shows that you hate watch? Because I have one, and it is called Pioneer Woman. What? I literally will watch Pioneer Woman and just, like, I don't even hate her. She's so nice. But I'm like, (laughs) I will watch Pioneer Woman and be like, this is disgusting. Everything that you're cooking is disgusting. (laughs) Like, her fucking recipes. I'm just like, oh, why would you do that? And then I will watch it. I can't stop watching it. Like, if I and your woman was on, I will watch it. But I will judge it the whole time. I don't, I don't really watch things that, like, I don't hate watch things. But what I do like is um, when I'm stuck at a family thing 
My sister and I will play a game with a bunch of shows on Food Network that we call the Butter Game. <laughs> which is, let's say that you're watching Barefoot Contessa or like a rerun of, um, who's that racist lady? Paula Deen. Yeah. Or like a rerun of Paula Deen, right? At the beginning of the episode, when either of these ladies tells you what they are cooking, you have to guess how much butter, how much cream, and like how much just like fat is going to be in the thing. And then whoever is closest at the end wins. You could also play that game with your woman. <laughs> yeah, good, good. I feel so bad. She's so nice. She's so nice. Everything, she's like just such a nice person. <laughs> but like... <laughs> Uh-huh. Honest to God. You can't even, like, get out a sentence because you're laughing so hard. She's so nice. <laughs> Tell us more about how nice she is, Prue. She is. She's so nice. She is really cute. <laughs> she's, her recipes are just like, holy shit. Are they, like, it's, disgusting? It's, well, like, her savory stuff is, like, it's very... Like, home cook, American mom, casseroles and shit like that. That's all pretty inoffensive. It's, like, mostly her desserts. Uh-huh. We're, like, we're, like, what the fuck happened here? Like, some of her, sh- like, some of her shit that's, like, a pineapple dunk cake and other things like that. Where I'm just, like, yo! What you doing? Do you ever, like, watch a cooking show and start to, like, get a weird insight into what the people of that country or, like, that person specifically likes to eat? Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, you're just like, but... So, like, when I watch Great British Bake Off, they love putting fruit in bread and cake, which I'm like, please, please stop doing that. Thank you. Right? Like, what are you you doing? Um... And we're not the quote sultanas. I'm sad. Yeah, and I'm like, please, please don't do that. And when I literally, we have a list of foods that we believe Australians love based on MasterChef Australia, which includes like beetroot and white chocolate. Like, I don't know. If you just put that together with like some fennel, all of Australia could be fed for a year. Like, I don't know what happens there, but that's how that works. And like, Ina Garten is like, Pretty much if she can grow it in her garden or she has a friend who somehow farms it organically, (laughs) right? You're like, she only eats things that have, like, lived recently in her presence. (laughs) And Paula Deen, it's like, if you shouldn't eat this, that's what she's cooking with. I just... So true. <laughs> Can I tell you like a terrible story of how I found out that Paula Dean had said racist stuff? Please do. This is like this is terrible and yet like so fitting. So like literally, like there was a period of time where like I didn't have cable or I wasn't watching. So like Paula Dean had like a high point like where she was super popular and then she like got less popular and she was sort of like on her downswing when like the attack of racism became public. Um but so, like, her show usually ran, like, early in the morning or something like that. So, like, I never saw it anymore. But I was, I remember really distinctly one day, I was, like, on the Macy's website. Oh, good. Trying to buy some pots. Because I wanted, like, I wanted some nonstick cookware or some stoneware. I had needs that day. I didn't end up buying anything. But, like, I clicked to the clearance section. 
And, like, the whole clearance section was just all Paula Dean shit that had been, like, marked out by, like, 50% and then 70% and then, like, 80%. And I was like, what is going on? Like, this is, like, the Rachel Ray shit, which is, like, not great, but, like, because it has Rachel Ray's name attached to it, it's always pretty expensive. Sure. This is the same thing where I'd, like, seen Paula Dean stoneware before and it always sold for, like, 50 to $80. And now it's on, like, 15 to $30. And I was like, what is happening? It was just, like, so weird. Like, everything that had Paula Dean's name on it was, like, suddenly on massive sale. So I was like, I wonder what happened. And, like, I Googled, and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what happened. I like that you did some market analysis there. It was just, it was so strange. It was just, like, all, everything. Everything was on sale from Paula. And I was like, I see. This makes sense now. <laughs> Go ahead. I want some racist cookware. I mean, if it didn't have her fucking name on it, I still would have bought it. Like, that shit's pretty good. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Any closing thoughts on food television, friends? The thing about food television that's kind of magic is, like, there's something about it that is just so soothing. Yes. I'm just like, please cook in front of me, even though I can't eat what you are preparing. And, like, I can't make it myself, clearly. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, something about this is very soothing. And it has a weird effect on people. Like, even my health nut job sister was like, I saw someone making cupcakes or out of cinnamon rolls or something on TV. And she was like, and I leaned forward into the TV. Like, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't even pull back. It was so engrossing. You needed to be close to it. That's right. I'm like, that's like... I don't know. There's something very comforting and primal about that need to be, like, very close to food. Well, it's sort of like what Nell said earlier. Like, at the base, cooking is about keeping yourself alive, right? right. It's about satisfying your most, ba- one of your most basic needs, like shelter, food, and water. Like, food is one of them. It's just like applying, like, fire to, like, dead creatures you murdered so you can survive. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's... I think there's something very primal about it that is also very soothing to us. Like having a kitchen and like a fully stocked pantry, like gives us a sense of safety. Like when you think of like depictions and television of like people who are like human disasters, there's always that really classic insert shot of their fucking empty refrigerator that has like a mustard bottle in it Mm -hmm. and like some moldy bread. And that's what I think of when I think of, like, someone who's, like, life is spun completely off its axis. It's, like, mm-hmm. people who don't even know how to feed themselves. Or, like, shitty college kids who are, like, eating cereal for three meals a day. And, like, one of those hallmarks of sort of, like, adulthood and, like, getting yourself together is, like, an ability to, like, at minimum boil pasta and broccoli. Mm-hmm. You know? Stuff like that. It's, I think that's partly why it so appeals well, and also, it's, like, it's such a basic skill, mm-hmm. like like you say, in terms of the fact that, like, you have, you know, it's just, can you feed yourself? And then you get to watch all of these people doing this thing mm-hmm. that you can probably do to some level. Like, you know, everyone is at a different level of cooking, but most people can do something yeah. without burning their house down. Um and, and then you're going to see these people doing it at a level that's, like, so far beyond, yeah. like, what I personally can aspire to. Like, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good, like, cookies and pies and cakes kind of baker, and I couldn't do, 
Any I would love to watch you do the tennis cake. Right. But like Isn't that essentially the like fundraiser where they made David Mitchell do Great British Bake Off? Oh my god, no. I need to watch that now though. Oh my god, it's so good because it's just like three celebrities competing shittily at Great British (laughs) Bake Off. I think it's one of their, like, it's either, like, the Red Nose. Yeah, it's Red Nose Day. Like, are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those. But, like, they've done, like, a celebrity Great British Bake Off that's just, you know, for for charity and all that. Um, It's 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 so great. Like, I think to see people do things that, like, I have such a lower level of competency, (laughs) but at the same time, I can, I appreciate a lot of the basics of what it is that they're doing. And I get to watch them do all these things. And then I don't have to clean up the kitchen. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to do any of the actual hard lifting for any of it. I just get to watch as all this stuff is happening in front of me, you know? And, like, I don't get to eat the cakes. But, like, there are stores. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So, like, even if I'm not going to go and immediately, like, whip up a batch of, you know, cupcakes or brownies or something like that, there's still that, like, level of, like, oh, I've been... I've been nourished in some way. Yeah. Like, it's um, probably better that I don't eat, like, 24 <laughs> Devil's Food cupcakes. But, like, the heart wants what it wants. Mm-hmm. And the heart wants heart disease, apparently. <laughs> um, the other cooking recommenda- the other cooking show recommendation I would make, if you guys are actually interested. So, for people who are actually interested, people who just, like, want to watch, like, chefs wear at each other and, like, set themselves on fire and, like, cut themselves with giant knives, top chef, A+. plus. Mm-hmm. Enjoy that shit. Um, if you actually want to learn how to cook, America's Test Kitchen is a fantastic, fantastic program for it. And the other one that I think taught me how to cook was um, Good Eats with Alton Brown. Mm. And not the full collection is up on Netflix, but um, a curated collection. And that is a show that mixes science with basic food ability. And it's like really charmingly low budge done. Mm. And it's very, very fun. Um the reason that I learned how to cook in college was because I didn't sleep in college. So I would be like watching the 15 reruns of, uh, of good eats that used to run from like midnight to like whatever on food network on my shitty living room couch in my apartment in Chapel Hill. So good job. I know. Thanks Alton. (laughs) Thank you. But yeah. Any last thoughts guys? Watch MasterChef Australia. It's the greatest. I'm actually, MK sent me a location at which I can obtain obtain MasterChef Australia, so I'm going to give it a shot. So if you don't see me ever again, it's because I'm watching 70 episodes (laughs) of MasterChef Australia. Yeah. Um, But before we actually close off for the week, we got an interesting uh, comment slash question. MK, do you want to read it? Yeah. We're so organized, guys. No, no, I just have to, like, open my surface. No, I'm also, like, really appreciative of the way that, like, as we were recording this episode, MK was fucking throwing shade at me on the Slash Report Twitter account, aka she sent out a tweet that reads, recording an ep about cooking competition shows, and the way Prue talks about Top Chef equals Gollum regarding his pressure. <laughs> that is ridiculous, because I would never lose Top Chef. <laughs> Gollum. Okay. So, the question slash comment, whatever we got, is about the most recent episode that we aired, which was part B of our time travel Ask Us Anything. Yes. Um, Anon. 
Hi, I've been in fandom for 15 plus years, which is almost nothing to some of the OGs, but it means that I've been around long enough to recognize and dislike some of the recentish fandom changes. Fandom has become less fun for me. I hate admitting it because fandom has been important to me for so long. I know you recorded your latest podcast a while ago, so your feelings might have changed, but I really appreciated the brief comments you made read this situation. Nice to know I'm not alone. I don't think our feelings have changed. They have not changed. Yeah, and guys, you're really lucky that I cut like a full hour from that episode because it got real dark. <laughs> As MK said in the opening to this episode that we did not record, that's what happens when Prue is drunk and MK is stoned. It gets real dark. <laughs> I did record that. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, right. you're I'm welcome. Now. It's not slash report until I'm secretly recording. Okay, naturally. But no, I, I definitely, I feel this very, uh, like, I don't know if, like, it's not like a sense of loss because fandom is still there and it's bigger and more robust and more available than it's ever been. But at the same time, I think a lot of the things that, like, I found so valuable in my early fanish experiences and that I benefit from to this day, like, literally, like, Nell is sitting in my living room, she's my friend, MK is, like, sitting in Toronto, and she's my friend, and, like, I only know these people because of fandom. And I kind of think about it in the context of, like, if, like, would I have made the same friendships if I had grown up with fandom in the context of what it is today, right? Like, we met because we had conversations in Lime Journal or because, like, other friends that I knew through fandom knew you guys, you know? And, like, the, the way that the whole thing is architected is different. I think that, like, a lot of the etiquette that used to exist is kind of gone some for the better some for the worse it's just like if i'm not like looking at it from like an old person who's like these kids these days but like there's just like a lot of infrastructure things that have like fallen away and as a result of that i think that i think we lose a lot of the richness the thoughtfulness of fandom so mistress curvy is in one direction fandom yes. <laughs> oh my gosh i'm so sorry listen <laughs> listen all i have to say Share your feelings. This is a safe space. <laughs> we all know someone who is stuck in 1D fandom. No, so here's the thing. This, this is what I'm trying to like, figure out how to express. I have literally never been happier to be in One Direction fandom than I am right now at this very moment. Awesome. So partly because, like, when the entire thing, like, when your entire fanish experience starts, like, burning around you, <laughs> you just, like, there's a clarity. Vikings episode.
accidental kissing on stage between the two of them because they just had to get that close to each other in order to whisper. Of and course. like and there's and so like there are just so many things about it that at this point, like as long as you as long as you are able to, for me, ignore like 95% <laughs> of the fandom as a whole, which is, pro- I mean, that's probably harsher than I, than it needs to be. But on the other hand, it's massive. And so yeah. that's probably accurate. Like, but like my corner of it is genuinely fantastic. But I think that that's one of the things like, so don't feel bad for me. <laughs> don't cry for me, Archie. I was just going to say. <laughs> exactly. So like, I feel blessed. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag blessed. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. And so <laughs> it's it's a thing. But I, I do think that one of the results of having been in One Direction fandom now for two and a half years is the fact that, like, which is simultaneously, like, you know, an entire age of my life, but yeah. it's also, like, it's only, that's half of how long the band has existed, you know, like, yeah. I am not an old within the fandom itself, mm. you know, just based on that kind of stuff, but it's a fandom that came of age, you know, on Twitter and on Tumblr, mm-hmm. and, like, and it does have a relationship to AO3, but that's only, like, half of the fic, really, because everything that's het is not on AO3 because there's a huge portion of the fic community yeah. that is all about members of the bands paired with original female characters. Like, right. in a way that AO3 doesn't tend to um, attract in yeah. the same way. You know, it's very much... And, and like that's very much a a holdover or just uh, the impact of what the origin of the AO3 is in terms yeah. of what kind of fic tended to be there. And, and what kind of people were exactly. there at the beginning. Right, exactly. Um, that's like one of the results of that, though, is that, like, I do think that there is a certain aspect of, like, the way that fandom feels different now than it did five or ten years ago or 15 years ago is just a generational thing that, like, you know, the... The, the people who are in my fandom who are teenagers or in college or in the early 20s, like, who started their fandom through One Direction, either on Twitter or on Tumblr or on Wattpad or all those different places, I don't know that they would say that their experience of it is removed and separated in the way that it may yeah. feel to us. Like, I do think that there is a certain aspect of the the place where fandom began for you yeah is what feels like the normalized way of fandom you know yeah i mean i almost feel like and mk see if you agree with me i almost view it as sort of like your childhood home that you can't go back to anymore Mm -hmm. like it exists in a time and a place but like so I first start, like, my first interactions, I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but, like, my first interactions with fandom were via the Gossamer archive, the X-Files text-based archives, mm-hmm. as well as the ephemeral auto-archive. 
where basically you had to like format your like text post in a certain way. And it was like literally just this constantly updating stream of all you got was like a title and an author. Mm -hmm. And you could, it was like absolutely like diving in blind, reading everything. And that was the fan fiction that we were consuming. Then people um, curated their own websites. A lot of them were on like university servers or early like pay for servers where these are like hardcore nerds. This is back when you had to like work to create a website, hmm. writing these massive pieces of meta and like X-Files mailing lists and X-Files like spoiler mailing lists and things like that in the early days of like, what is a spoiler? Right. Um, and so, so much of my early Finnish experience was reading what other smart people thought. Mm-hmm. I think like so much of what I associate with fandom is specifically the thing that I have such a hard time finding these days which is meta. Mm-hmm. Like so much of what I love about fandom is reading intelligent meta about stuff. And it doesn't really exist the way it used to, or if it does, I don't know where it lives. I know that a lot of people like talk in Tumblr tags, but like those are not cogent, those are not cogent meta arguments. Those are not like teased out discussions of things the way that I was used to. And like, they're okay. Like I'm, sure that those people are very happy that that exists but can I sound less enthusiastic? I was gonna say do you want to throw a little more shade there like I mean like let me plant this tree right here over in your Tumblr tag meta I mean like it's fine it's just it's not to my it's like not for me like I like I think that a lot of the things that people get into in like the Tumblr spaces where meta exists are great but they're the beginnings of an idea mm-hmm. or like they're a half-formed idea or they're, like, a thing that is part of an idea that, like, if you pursued would be interesting, but it, you also wouldn't be able to, like, get it in and out of the door in, like, five seconds and then hope to gather as many notes as possible with your, like, gifs. Mm-hmm. See, this is a thing where, like, so you talk about this a lot, and I've been thinking about it a lot, and for me, the meta was never that important. Like, it was just not something I was particularly interested in. It's not something I spent a lot of time reading. If I saw a post about it, um, a lot of the time I would skip it. Of course. Um, What was interesting to me is the evolution of, like, tropes and norms inside of fandoms. Like, we have a way that we are like, everybody knows this. This is how this works. This is how the AO3 works, etc. But if you go into, like, a different corner of the internet, it's like people are rebuilding fandom from, like, the 90s forward all over again, and, like, stuff is brand fucking new. And it's it's actually really interesting watching it happen. Like, it's, like, a little time capsule, but it's also, like, so strange to me, just because when I was a kid, there were all the different fandoms, and they each had their own specific, like, language and way of doing things in fandom, and it sort of, like, coalesced over time. Um, and I feel like it's... I mean, we talk about the fragmentation phase of how fandom is located in different spots now, but like literally it's growing in different ways. And again, developing different languages of like ways of talking about things. And I think that's really interesting. That I agree with. Like you said, watching the evolution of things was really interesting. Yeah. It's said though, I do wonder like the, the information organizer slash archivist in me does wonder about like the longevity, a lot of fandoms that we look at now like, just, like, any, I was looking at some reckless the other day, and I think it must have been, it's probably a Hannibal reckless, because I've been 
reading a lot of Hannibal stuff recently. But The Reckless was, like, 50% like AO3 stories mm-hmm. and like 50% Tumblr stuff. Like fake, but fake or like half stories or meta that people had posted to Tumblr. Like a quarter of the Tumblr links were broken. Right. Or like people had renamed themselves. And like there's no way to find it. Like it's gone forever. Like uh, some of that stuff looked really interesting. And I was like, oh, how can I? There's no way. Right. There's literally no way to find it. It probably exists somewhere. But the existing neural networks of fandom, like the things that index things, that find things for you, that mean... So, like, if a book exists, but it's not cataloged, it may as well not exist. No one can ever access it. It's gone. So it's like, it's like, sure, it's in the stacks, but, like, who's going to find it? Like, no one is ever going to be able to access that knowledge. And I think that that's a lot of, like, what concerns me about the current iteration of fandom. Like... AO3 is great. I think that, like, people... I know that you hate it when people post a meta to AO3, MK. Yeah. But I would rather have it there than, like, gone to the ether forever. I would like it if there was a way to, like, indicate what your posting is. Like, is it a fake? Is it video? Is it meta? And then let people filter out for that. That's my problem. As soon as, like... As soon as you can filter and sort that way easier than you can right now, which, you know, if they're hiring a coder, I think they'll get there. Um, it's just like the inability to like, I'll be looking for a fic and I'm like, no, I just clicked on meta. I don't like meta. I don't care. I don't want it. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Cause I think I'm sensing like a deeper <coughs> fundamental divide in the way that you and I have approached fandom. Okay. Mm. Like this also is sort of evinced in the way that we like approach the types of stories we like. So like, I constantly accuse you of being sort of like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Like you're such a man. You don't care about anybody's pleasure, but yours in terms of fanfic. Where you just want, like, the get-together. Yeah. And, like, the first time, and you don't care about the established relationship. Yeah. Where my favorite thing is to, like, read about, like, relationships in progress and all the exhausting, like, boring. I know. I know. (laughs) I go into it. And, hey, would you say that you are more into fandom for, like, the community aspect of fandom? Or are you more into fandom for the product of fandom, specifically the fanfic? 100% the product. The community is, like... A sometimes byproduct. Okay. Hmm. And I think that, like, over time, I have, like, I've resorted to, like, basically consuming the product. But I definitely started off, like, one of the people, like, the little builders in the community. Like, I loved having conversations with people about it. Mm-hmm. Like, I had lots of discussions about Scully's Gold Cross. <laughs> with of course. People. I'm about to start again in January. I go <laughs> down. Um, but I was definitely, like, one of the community people became no. a product person. Mistress Kirby? Um, I mean, I, I was, I was sort of both simultaneously in terms of the fact that, like, the first, like, year and a half that I was, like, actively in fandom or like, that I would consider it to be a place that I, that, like, I would own, essentially, I was just consuming product. Like right. I was like, I was just reading. I didn't really have any like in into the community itself. I didn't know at that point like what. I mean, I was a lurker. Like I was very yeah. much like that. Like that was my entry in, and I didn't know what it was that I had to contribute. Mm-hmm. And until that evolved for me, 
I, I didn't feel like I had any access into the community because it was, it wasn't a two way street. You know, yeah. there wasn't any sort of actual dialogue that was happening between me and what was producing yeah. the content that I was consuming. And so, um, but like now that, now that I'm at the point that I am with fandom, I can't really imagine it being that way again for me because yeah. what it is that I get is so interactive. Like, yeah. And, but I think that one of the things that like both of you guys have been talking about in terms of, you know, the desire for the archival and like just being able to find the things that you want to find mm -hmm. and, and sort of having that sense of like, well, I know that it's out there or I know what I want. I know what I wish was out there and yeah. feel like should be out there. And even, you know, MK's desire to have the ability to filter exactly for what it is that she's looking for so that she doesn't have to deal with the stuff that she's not because that feels like a, a waste of time and just sort of that, mm -hmm. like, that sense of it. The pace of fandom has shifted so radically. Yes. And so that's, that's a huge part of it, too, that, like, there isn't, you know, and everyone talks about this in terms of the, one of the biggest difference between, like, Tumblr and, and like, the journaling mm -hmm. communities is just the pace and like how quickly, you know, like the hot take mentality in a lot yeah. of ways of like how it is that you respond to things and like the fact that like, you know, I'm in, I'm in an RPF fandom that is so active and has so much content that like so many things happen in a 24 hour span that like something will happen at 2 PM, you know, and if you haven't, had your response to it by like 8 p.m. that evening. You've missed that wave because there's something new that's coming right around the corner. And like, and, and that's just, that's a thing that you just have to sort of be able to, to ride if you're going to be in that fandom. And like, you have to, you know, like everyone does it differently, but that's just kind of the nature of it. And part of it is that it does become addictive in that sort of way because it's like, it's a constant stimulant, you know, yeah. and you're always getting a new injection and, and there's just, and so, and you see that a lot on Tumblr in terms of like both the good and the bad in terms of the fact that like when something great happens, you really do have just this, like this swell of like yeah. everyone responding to it. And it's amazing. But the flip side of that is that, when something bad happens, like whatever that is, Aww. and like whatever the validity like of the badness <laughs> or whatever the fuck it is that you want to say about it, yeah. like the speed with which that turns into just like inescapable and just boring and not, none of it actually does anything, like none of yeah. it actually changes anything, none of it actually has any impact. And so it's just the constant, it's the outrage cycle, you yeah. know? And so like you get all of those. And so I think that in a lot of ways, fandom just feels like a reflection of the way that the internet as a whole has sped up in terms of how people are responding. Yeah. And so when you have that kind of, but like when you have that kind of like response cycle, that's so fast, that kind of meta that you're talking about from, you know, days of old, like, like there was literally something that I, I wrote about in One Direction fandom from last month, like a month and a half ago at this point. 
where the thing in question happened on a Thursday. Yeah. And I didn't manage to post the meta that I wrote about it until Monday. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I was like, do I even bother posting this? Yeah. Because I'm talking about yesterday's news. And I decided to post it and it went over great. I'm really glad I did. Blah, 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 blah. But the other big thing about it was that a lot of the tags that I would get in reblogs or a lot of the things that people would send me and asks were literally things like, I'm so glad that you're still talking about this. <laughs> it's you know? been a day. And it's and it was literally from a Thursday to a Monday. And like that's how <coughs> manding the response cycle is at this point. Yo, I got old bones. I'm yeah. tired. I don't want to be I mean, like, I, I agree, but it's just it's one of those things where it's like and and I do think that my fandom in particular is on the cutting edge. You are on the Autobahn of fandom screen. <laughs> You know, 100%. Like, and it's going to be fascinating because when they go on the break next spring or whenever it is that they're actually going on break, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in that void in yeah. terms of, because like, it used to be that you could have either a band that would be on a break between when they were doing albums or you could have a television show that was on break and, you know, during just year to year hiatus and that would be when everyone would be like okay now we have four months before we're gonna get joss so everyone write all the thick everyone write all the meta everyone do all of the overarching things that we didn't have time for now that we actually have the space for it and i feel like there's i would like it if fandom had time to breathe yeah and like and so that way you could actually really get into all of that stuff. But I don't, I don't know how. I think it can happen. I yeah. think it can happen. If for no other reason than what's happened in the wake of the finale of Hannibal. Yeah. Like, I really, I wasn't, when that show went down, like, literally, <laughs> I, like, I really wasn't sure how the fandom would react. After we all came out of, like, our catatonic schizophrenia from, like, the craziness that was the finale like when I like reawakened into reality I like literally watched that finale with a friend and then we had to go downstairs and smoke a cigarette really like slowly (laughs) like literally next to a playground so like everything about this was terrible like we turned off the television went downstairs smoked a cigarette by a playground and then came back upstairs and rewatched the whole fucking finale right there um but, like, in the weeks since, I think the fandom has really had time to kind of process it. And there's still, like, a good amount of, like, interesting meta and, like, stuff that people are putting together and fanfic that's coming out of it. So, like, who knows? Maybe the break will be, like, a glorious renaissance. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, like, I'm really curious. And, like, and I and I think that's, like, I, I, what I 100% believe, like, regardless of what ends up happening, yada, 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 in terms of, you know, what's next for, for them and all that kind of thing. Like, the fandom is desperate for it. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not, it's not actually sustainable. And, like, you know, part of the reason why they're taking a break is it because, is because it isn't sustainable for them in their lives. Yeah. But it's also genuinely not from a fandom standpoint. And, yeah. like, and part of it is because, you know, there isn't time to either really write, you know, 
the epic fix or to even just have like a true appreciation of everything that's like that's been happening because everything is so immediate and like and again I know that mine is an extreme but I do think that there's a general sense of that that there's either like that people are either like I want to be more invested in fandom, but I don't know what's out there. I don't know how to engage. I don't know how to have that kind of thing. If it's not with, you know, the friends that you actually take with you from fandom to fandom to fandom, um, because they've transcended the friendship of of just one specific fandom and have now become, you know, a more generalized friend. Um, Or you're in a fandom that is nonstop and it's like, and and it seems like those are the two sides of the clues. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, but, but I also do think that like, you know, at this point, Tumblr has been the dominant mode for like three or four years at this point. fire. But yes. the thing is, it's not going to last. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is that's going to take its place. I don't know how it is that things are going to shift, but I don't know either. But it's going to. Like, that's the only thing that I feel yeah, certain about, just because, you know. Change is inevitable. Yeah, and especially in terms of, like, internet technology. It's like, you know, part of the reason why LJ, beyond just what happened with Dreamwith and, like, all the different shit that went down with LJ, is that LJ wasn't built to be read and interacted with on a phone, you know? And, like, because who the fuck knew in 2001 we would walk around carrying pocket computers? Exactly, you know? And so, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Okay, so I've been thinking about this as you guys have been talking, and I realized it's not that I don't like meta or the community. I don't like it written down. It's the same way that, like, I have a lot of trouble reading newspapers. I just, like, immediately want to, like, throw it away from me. I hate it. I don't like it at all. Um, but I like getting meta via podcasts, which is probably why I listen to so many podcasts and why I do two of them. And it's the same thing with like, I now get a bunch of my news via podcasts because I just find it a lot more accessible. (coughs) And that makes total sense because obviously, you know, the slash report is fundamentally meta. Yeah. Like it is, there's a reason that I made this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, I think when it's, like, verbal, I feel like there's, that's where I'm getting the connection, whereas if it's written down, I'm just, like, it's almost like I don't even see it. Mm. Well, I do think that's really the way that, you know, that podcasting both in fandom also just in general has become such a dominant, like, means of, you know, getting information or having any sort of, like, you know, and I think there is something very intimate about getting to hear someone's voice. Yeah. Getting to, I mean, part of it is that it's not that you can't come away from a podcast with a different interpretation of what a person said than what they intended, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of tone issues that don't exist with podcasts in the same way that they can with like a written piece of meta. Absolutely. You know, because you can actually hear when a person is laughing and so you're like, ah, that's a joke, you know, yeah. like just that general sort of sense of, you know, either this is a person who's talking about this in a way that is compatible with how I see it, or it's not. And, um, and so, you know, and and like everyone talks about the ways in which like 
Tumblr doesn't allow for communication back and forth in the same way that like journaling did. Like all those different things are definitely true, you know, and I think that like fandom's gatekeeping used to be much more extensive. Yeah. And that had, you know, huge benefits and it also had huge drawbacks. And so yes. it's just very much, you know, it, it really, it, it isn't as sort of like, everyone agrees that it was better back in the day and if we could go back to the way it was, we would. Yeah, I don't think that's what, yeah, I don't think that's what anybody, like, whenever people say, like, I miss LJ, I don't think that they miss LJ. Yeah, I think that they miss being able to have a conversation. Right. And I think that's the component that's really missing. Although, I mean, like, going, like, I think we need to wrap this up because this has been, like, we've been talking for, like, 800 years. But I, I think that on the podcasting front, like, as a kid who, like, grew up on NPR, mm -hmm. there's something so intimate about yeah. the human voice. And there's something so intimate specifically about radio because it strips out a lot of the affectation and things that you can use to distract someone. Like, the visual is all gone. Mm -hmm. But all of it is in the timber of your voice and, like, the tremor. And, like, you can hear how excited or how scared someone is or, like, how, like, creepily into Top Chef I am. You know, like, all of that is there. You can hear how, if you thought from my Twitter on Saturday night that I wasn't losing my fucking mind <laughs> over a thing that happened in goddamn Birmingham, England, that, like... You were wrong, friends. She was losing her goddamn... I was losing my goddamn mind. And you sort of got a better impression of that just from... <laughs> me struggling with whether or not I was actually even going to talk about it because, <laughs> because my feels were so strong. We're so strong. You know what I'm going to make you do? Oh, no. I'm just putting this in the podcast as like a little reminder to myself. <laughs> I'm going to force you to find like at least one other One Direction friend and oh, then God. like to record an update because we did a One Direction episode like, like way back in the day, like three years ago. Forever ago. Yeah, I know, I know. It was right when Take, when Take Me Home came out, which was like their second fucking album. It's None like, of those things make sense I know, to me. I, I know, was, I was listening to Hazards of Love on repeat because <laughs> uh, I'm like the grossest hipster of all time. But we should do a One Direction update episode. Not for anybody else's benefit, just so that I can, like, watch this happen and, like, get the kicks out of watching you, like, slowly fall apart. Okay. <laughs> That's the sound of Stockholm Syndrome. It's happening, friends. Maybe we'll have, like, a follow-up to Cockroach Cake. Oh, God. Well, mm, I mean, <laughs> one of the best episodes I've ever recorded. Anyways, guys. On that note, guys, I think we've talked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this delicious and ridiculous food-based journey. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, and if you miss us during the week, you can find us on Twitter at Slash Report, on Tumblr at Slash Report, even though we don't post anything on our Tumblr. You can find me on Twitter at Often Imprinted. You can find MK on Twitter at Moon Plus. And until next week, we will see you on the flip side. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Fire. <laughs> You're an X-Man. Or I have extremists. <laughs>